So, of course, people in the world are trying to deal with the questions, and they're trying to deal with the the doubts and the confusion. Um, you know, I mean, they 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 might lean towards a blind sort of a blind chance uh, philosophy about life. They could adopt that, uh, I suppose, or they could they could maybe fall into believing some sort of fatalism that things are just that's just the way things are, and not really see the purpose of God. Uh, behind that, but that's certainly not where we are, right? As believers, we're not we're not fatalists. Um, uh, we're not. We don't believe in blind chance. Uh, we believe God governs everything, right? Everything is governed by the Lord. We know that because that's what the Bible teaches, right? We don't do that just because of the bumper stickers. Uh, you know, God is in control. Uh, um, God is my co-pilot. You know, that's the one that's, that's the scary one. Um, yeah. Uh, Isaiah 43 verse 10 says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have ch- chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was, was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Uh, that's the, the, the numeric standard that says, I act, and who can reverse it? Uh, in the New Testament, we have Ephesians 1.11, of course, a statement about the overall work of God in, in governing everything by His sovereign will. Uh, verse 11, in Him, speaking of Christ, we have ob- obtained an inheritance. So this is something, it's, it's past tense. We, we, have, we've, we, have, we possess this. We have, this has been realized, achieved. Why? Because God has made it so. He says this, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there's really just no way around those kinds of statements. Uh, it's, it's comprehensive. Uh, everything that exists and everything that occurs does so because of the precise plan and purposes of God, which in the case of Ephesians uh, includes our eternal inheritance, Right, so by implication, if you're a Christian, you cannot be lost, and certainly this isn't the only place that that emphasizes that. But people have these kinds of questions about their salvation, about God's plan. Can can God's plan for our arrival in glory be altered in some way? Uh, can it be hindered? Can can outside forces in the universe take that away? Or what about our own sin? We're weak, right? We, we struggle with sin every day. We, we often fail. We have this question, will, will my failings and my sin sever me from God's love? And the answer is no, of course. And these are some of the questions that Paul is addressing in Romans 8. So if you're there, I want to pick up in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now the hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too, weak, too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit uh, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this is what this is what Paul says: that if we have placed our faith in Christ, we have been forgiven. We are no longer under God's wrath. We have been justified and set apart uh, unto the Lord. We have, we've entered into that process of spiritual growth that we often refer to as progressive sanctification. And as Christians, according to verse 25 and other New Testament passages, we are called to persevere. We are called to, to, to be steady, to be consistent, to, to press forward in the Christian life. But whenever we're called to do that, to persevere and endure, we immediately, I think, face this tension that on the one hand, we know that it is the proactive work that God calls his people to, that we're called to, to, to be engaged, if you will, in our sanctification. But on the other hand, we equally know that in this life, that until we get to glory, that we are vulnerable, So the tension comes because of the fact that we're called to stay steady and to not waver, and yet we know by personal experience and from our own track record that without the Lord's moment-by-moment help, without His constant help, we would sink. That we cannot on our own, in our own strength, by ourselves, moment-by-moment, preserve and uphold our own faith and make it to glory. So this becomes our concern that if that we are commanded by God to keep striving and persevering and yet we know that we are vulnerable and weak and this is what Paul says yes you are weak your perseverance is sometimes shaky you are limited sometimes you don't even know what to pray for sometimes your prayers are short-sighted Sometimes you don't recognize your real needs. Sometimes you don't even know how to express what you need. And so what does the Spirit of God do for you? Well, He protects you. He, he strengthens your perseverance. He is working within you, helping you with your particular burdens and with your specific weaknesses. He is pleading before God with you and for you. He he knows you and he knows the will of God and he is translating, if you will, your burdens and struggles to God so that it comes out at the throne of grace as something that God loves and that God wants for your life, enabling you to take another step of faith. In fact, every member of the Trinity is involved in our perseverance. The Father knows our hearts and wants us to 
to, where he wants to get us to glory. He has predestined, it says, to get us there. The Son, who is our advocate, has having purchased our salvation so that God's judgment cannot come against us, he, Romans says, is interceding for us, and the Spirit is interceding, bridging that gap of our daily weakness in the providential outworkings of God to get us to glory. So verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And the Spirit intercedes for us with divine purposes beyond our human ability. So I I don't have the ability as a believer to get to glory on my own, but the Spirit's intercession works in the divine purpose to get me to the end to get me to glory. And this brings us to verse 28, which is probably of all the verses in chapter 8, this may be the most familiar. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, it's, It's one of the most beloved verses, I think, in all the Bible, although sadly the one that is the most likely not to be believed. And in this verse, Paul describes various aspects of our security as Christians. That is the security of our salvation. But involved in that is is his providence. Or think of it this way. The obvious promise here is that God is working all things together for our good. But how could we be certain of that? if we were not also certain that God is indeed working in all things. So this one, this one promise in verse 28, this one promise is sufficient to prove the truth of God's providence or his personal presence and his constant and meticulous work in everything that happens in his creation. Now just to unpack verse 28 a bit. Paul begins by emphasizing, and I'm just going to point out a few things here, and then we're going to sort of go from here and talk more broadly about this doctrine of providence. Paul begins by emphasizing the certainty of our security as children of God. Uh, again, it's kind of you have to kind of get the flow of thought here. You think back to what Paul has already said. If we are believers, we have the Spirit dwell, uh, dwelling in us, and because we have the Spirit within us, we have the power to kill sinful desires on a daily basis. We also have the inner witness of the Spirit that we have been adopted into God's family. And because of that, we are always drawn back into intimate fellowship. We always have, if you will, a longing in our hearts that is Spirit-produced to go back and to be under the provision and the protection of God. And Paul says we have the Spirit who helps to overcome our severely limited prayer life when we go to God for help. This is how God is working all things together for our good to get us to glory. That, that is how he does it. So if you were to be lost, if you were to lose your salvation, the Father would have to no longer want it as a part of his predestined plan. The Son would have to no longer go before God as your advocate and my advocate He would have to say nothing on our behalf. 
he would have to stop interceding and the Spirit would have to stop his day-to-day, moment-by-moment intercessory work in the providence of God through all of life's circumstances. All of that would have to stop. All of that activity. And Paul says that is not going to happen. We should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God himself through His Spirit, is causing every part of our lives to become the perfect, custom-made path for our spiritual best, both now and on our way to glory. Everything... Sing the dog... In some places, Scripture does that in these moments, right? After some of these kinds of, of statements. Everything that happens to you, it is decreed by God and carried out by God. This is His providential preserving Work. It is secure. It is certain. It cannot be altered. It cannot be rescinded, hindered, stolen, or stopped. What does Paul say? And we know. Right? We know this. Christians know this. We, we cannot be in the dark about this. How this work begins, how this process on our, of, of, our, of our path to glory is carried out, and the certain and ultimate outcome. We know this to be true. We know this with objective certainty that God has been at work, He is at work, He will be at work, because He has ordained all of it. And that is where Paul takes us in verse 28 to explain one of the most supernatural steadying doctrines in all of Scripture into deep waters of truth that comfort us but also cause us to tremble because they are so profound and we are so finite. And this is what Paul tells us and shows us, that God is carrying out divine purposes that were in his heart and they cannot be stopped. That from start to finish, there is an eternal chain of redemption, a chain of redemption that leads sinners to glory in Christ and it cannot be stopped or broken. This is what we know. There are some things we don't know. Again, that's our, while we have so many questions and we have so many doubts and concerns, there's things that we don't know. There, I've seen people in, in counseling do this, always trying to find out the things that God never promised to tell them. <laughs> they're seeking the things that really there's no certainty that they can know it, and at the same time, guess what they're ignoring? All of the certainties, all of the places where it says, we know this, we know this, we know this. So there's many things we don't know. We've already seen in verse, 20, verse 26 that sometimes we don't know what to pray for. We, certain, we, we clearly don't understand what God is doing in every facet of, our, of every situation. Even Paul himself confessed that there were many times when he was perplexed that God's hand in our lives is not always apparent. His ways are not always visible, but we definitely know this, that there is a plan a plan that is being worked out down to the smallest detail by a faithful God who is, whose inner Trinitarian will cannot be changed and altered. This is the certainty of our security as Christians. Next, uh, Paul describes what you might call the extent of the Christian's security. Notice what he says, the phrase there in the middle of verse 28. We know that for those who, who love God, all things work together for good, Uh, which is a very concise way of describing what we refer to in theology as providence or the doctrine of divine concurrence. 
that concurrently, or, or which just means at the same time, that concurrently or at the same time with the natural order of things in life as they are working out, God is sovereignly working out His ultimate will and what He has ordained to occur. So God is not impersonal. He did not create the universe and then stand back and allow it to operate according to certain principles. He is not an absent or a passive figure. The God of Scripture is an imminent being. He is near and He is personally and constantly and permanently and exhaustively pervading and sustaining and governing every aspect of creation. Uh, here's a definition of providence, and I, I, I thought we had the TV in here, so I had some of this up, so I apologize for some of these quotes because I thought we'd be able to just read, read them on the, on the screen, but uh, this is one definition. Providence is God's continuous involvement with his creation whereby he preserves and governs all his cre- creations from the greatest to the least so that in accord with his perfect will and wise design, he sovereignly orders everything he has made to accomplish everything that he intends for his own glory. Um, in fact, the word, prov- by the, way, the word providence is not in most English translations. Uh, you, you might find this uh, in the King, I think maybe once or twice in the King James, but what we're basically talking about here is, is, is God's, it's more than the sovereignty of God. It's actually the purposeful, it's, it's God's sovereign, purposeful action. I mean, sovereignty just speaks to the fact that God has the right, right? Like, like he rules over everything. But when we talk about providence, we're talking about God sovereignly engaging, right? In fact, in the, um, in the, the Genesis 22 passage, uh, when Abraham goes to sacrifice his son and God provides Jehovah Jireh. It's, it's, it's basically the, the, the God who, in most translations, the God who sees or the God who provides. But it's just, it's, it's the word for see. It's the God who sees. But the reason they translate that as the God who provides is because God is, does not, when, when, it's, when the scriptures say that God sees something, it's just not God passively sitting back and observing something. It's God seeing something and then actively engaging in what's going on, right? Carrying out his purposes. So it's God's purposeful provision. It's not only God seeing, but it's God seeing and acting, Okay. Uh, you, I like this is, a, this is another sort of a, a short, this is a little, a little simpler than the one I just read. The intimate care of God for his creation, right? So it talks about care, that's the engagement. It's, it, it encompasses everything that he's created. So everything outside of himself, all things, and it's intimate. So it's emphasizing that this is, again, not God sort of sitting back. This is God actually getting extremely engaged, even down to the smallest of details. And so he has intimate personal knowledge of all things and he exercises unbroken involvement in all things. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, says it this way, and this is sort of a modernized uh, version of this, but question 27 in that catechism says, what do you mean by the providence of God? The answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade 
rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Again, you'll notice that providence isn't the same as God's predestination or his eternal decree. Rather, it's the execution of that decree within the time and space of his creation. It's his action or his work whereby he preserves and governs all things, which we often fail to acknowledge. Sometimes we think of providence, I think, in this way. That same answer, but God so rules them that leaf and blade rain, fruitful years, food and drink, health, prosperity, and the things that we think are good come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand (laughs) and we scratch out drought lean sickness and poverty right as if god is only behind the good things that we experience in life the very next question in that catechism verse uh, question 28 how does the knowledge of god's creation and providence help us answer we can be patient when things go against us thankful when things go well And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. That is to say, the doctrine of God's providence affirms his absolute lordship over his creation and it confirms the dependence of all of creation on its creator. Again, some people want to believe that they are free in the sense that they are autonomous from the Creator, but again, biblically, this simply simply cannot be. That's, that's impossible. And the doctrine of God's providence <clears throat> confirms this reality because it says that He is preserving and governing His creation. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For, verse 28, in Him we live and move and have our being. In other words, in Him we exist. There is no way for us to exist without being in Him. Uh, you, You would not be here, I would not be here, if God did not bring you and I into existence and did not sustain your existence. Edwin, uh, Edward uh, Corbett uh, was an English clergyman, member of the Westminster Assembly. This is actually while he was addressing the House of Commons in 1658. He said this, quote, We cannot utter one word, think one thought, turn our eye, or move a finger without the concurrence of his power who gives life and breath and all things. So it's, it's a profound truth. Uh, Men and women have struggled through the centuries to describe God's providence. I think uh, in a concise way, the Westminster Confession of Faith says it like this, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge. 
and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And that is only one of seven sections under the heading of providence in the Westminster Confession. How does Paul sum it up in Romans 8? All things work together for good for God's own. That's Paul's summary. Or as the New American Standard says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Yes? So, would you say that there's a special providence concerning believers and a general providence? Uh, we're going there. Yeah, we're going there. Yeah, because the question comes up and Paul answers it in, the, in verse 28, which is, who does this apply to? Right? Who is God, when it says he's working all things together for good, for who? Right? So this, at least this particular passage speaks to that. We'll get to that here in just, just a moment. So again, scriptures relentlessly declare this to be true, that, that not only did God create all things out of nothing, but he continuously works to preserve it. In fact, Job 34, verse 14 and 15 is very sobering. This is Elihu speaking of God's providence says this, if God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Nehemiah 9.6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the, the, you made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is, it is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Again, the New Testament truth about Christ says the very same thing. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in, all, all, in him all things hold together. So this language of providence in the Bible clearly indicates that everything is continually kept enduring. Hebrews 1.4 says this concerning Jesus Christ, that he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Now, what does all this mean as far as our salvation is concerned? It means that God has thought of everything, including any threat that might obstruct or thwart our way to glory. He has not overlooked anything. He has not been distracted with what is going on with this Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the Republican primaries. He is fully aware of anything and everything that could jeopardize our faith, that could endanger our spiritual, our spiritual walk. He has thought of every contingency, and he has worked them all out. He's sustaining us through every situation in every detail. Also implies that God has the power to do good. In other words, the only way that all things could work together for our good would be if God Himself had the power to guarantee that result. And He does. He has the ability to do good, and it's not just good, but good that is bound up with His holiness, which means that it has to be the best and finest good that could ever be. Not only has God thought of everything, and not only does he have the power to do good, but he is directing all things. Again, this is the, the doctrine of human divine concurrence. 
that everything that you do is a choice that you make. You make it according to your nature. You make it according to the moral universe that you live in. You make it according to reasonable choices you have available to you. You operate as a free moral agent in that universe. But it's also true that your freedom to choose those things has to do with how God has created you as a moral being. And you do choose according to your nature, given the life circumstances that you live in. You are not a robot. You you get up every day and you make choices, hundreds of them. And yet this verse says that God is directing all of your choices by his ordination and his sovereignty to work according to the good that he is going to produce for your ultimate arrival in glory. He is directing all of that. And so when you... When you fall down the steps, you don't say, I'm glad that's over. You learn from it, right? You you learn from these things. You decide to be more careful the next time, hopefully. You make decisions every day, but yet God is directing it, all of it. Again, God directing, and there's just examples of all kinds of things in Scripture that God is directing. I mean, you've got examples of those things which are inanimate, the whirlwinds and the clouds and the snow. You've got him directing the animal world. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, which doesn't merely mean that God watches and observes that. Again, it's not just about God seeing it. It means that without God's expressed decree and permission, even a sparrow doesn't die. He directs every nation's every nation, the boundaries and the, and the longevity and the influence of every civilization. I love what Jerry Bridges says in Trusting God. He says, Nothing is too large or small to escape God's governing hand. The spider building its web in the corner and Napoleon marching his army across Europe are both under God's control. He directs every human affair. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Again, not some things, but all things. Your birth, your life, your food, your clothes, your talents, your economic condition, your position, your favor with other people, your, your race, your government leaders, and yes, your eternal salvation. All of these are under God's control. Every day, human beings are, as free moral agents, make choices that have moral implications, and yet somehow behind them all is this providential hand of the Lord working concurrently through all of those things to bring about His unchanging and ultimate purpose. Somebody might say, well, I, I, I hear that. I, I could embrace that if it weren't for so much evil in the world. Whether it's natural evil that exists in this sort of chaotic universe that does bring so much suffering on mankind or moral evil where human beings in their corrupt state perpetrate evil on others. You may be thinking, I could could believe that all things work together for good except for the fact that there is so much bad. But when it comes to dealing with what is going on in our world, whether it's genocide or cancer or slander, we need to understand what the Scriptures say. First, that we we understand that God is good by nature, not evil. So while God may govern and preserve and work through and concurrently with and overpower both natural and moral evil, evil does not emanate from him. 
Only good emanates from Him. God is only good by nature. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we've heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Psalm 5, 4, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So even though evil is permitted and governed and directed by Him, it cannot emanate from Him. In other words, though God controls both good and evil, He does not approve of evil and He is not tainted by it. In fact, He hates evil. He is opposed to it with a holy disdain and He is morally pure and perfectly good. Second, we have to understand that God uses evil for His glory and the good of His children. You say, well, how does all that fit together? I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. All I know is that God is good, not evil. Man is sinful. God is meticulously sovereign. And Scripture doesn't blush for even a moment when it, com- when it claims that God exerts sovereign control over all things, including all evil. Which is what I think so many people fail to understand. God is not trying to protect himself from the idea that he might actually have a purpose for evil. Evil is not a disruption in God's purpose. God is the one who ordained the existence of evil for the demonstration of his own character and glory. Third, we need to understand that we must never view evil as something good. Again, the Bible is clear. God causes all things, including evil, to work together for good, and he overpowers evil in its ability to thwart our salvation and uses it in our favor and even uses it to get us to glory, but it in and of itself is evil. Evil and suffering that comes from it are an enemy of God. They are not morally good at all, and they should not be rejoiced over just because God promises to use them for our good. We should rejoice in God's promise, but never rejoice over evil. Pain and affliction and evil and death are the result of sin, and they are enemies of Christ. Evil is evil, it is bad, and it will always be bad. Again, Joseph in the Old Testament... I'm sure you're familiar with this this narrative, but Joseph understood these things. Again, you may remember that story recorded in in Genesis. It gives us a great paradigm for how to approach, I think, situations where other people transgress God's moral precepts, and we suffer perhaps as a result of that. Again, this is sort of the thumbnail sketch of Joseph's life. His older brothers were jealous of him, who despised him, intended to kill him, but instead beat him and then sold him into slavery and told his father that he was dead. He ends up in Egypt, completely cut off from everything familiar to him. He, he's in this wicked culture. He, he starts to rise to influence in the palace when his reputation is slandered by Mrs. Potiphar. And he is only doing at the time what was right. And so he suffers for doing what is right. He ends up in prison for close to 12 years. And after his release eventually rises to a place of prominence and had opportunity to dole out a punishment upon the wicked intentions of his own family. But you remember what he said to his brothers. Genesis 45, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then he goes on in chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant, the same, same word in the Hebrew, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In other words, you, you intended from your evil desires to do evil to me, and God permitted it and directed it because he was permitting and directing with the intention to bring good about salvation, his redemptive purposes. And he was realizing his intention at every point. Joseph knew what Romans 8.28 would later teach. That as believers, we have the promise that God who lived lives in us is using what is inherently bad to carry out a good and holy and righteous end that will totally overrule and overpower the evil that he is directing and permitting. All things work together for good. That includes the sufferings that Paul mentions in Romans 8.17. It includes the groaning of verse 23. It includes the sins that others have committed. It includes the assaults of Satan himself. Joseph Carroll, in his exposition of Job, said this, Satan cannot so much as untie our shoes without God's permission. And what about our own sinfulness? Even our own sinfulness. John Owen said this, quote, nothing including our crass errors is, be- nothing including our crass errors is beyond the overriding ministry of divine providence. This is what Paul is getting at in this section. The Spirit of God is interceding in your prayer life through your weaknesses. And I want you to know that this is the providential preserving work of God as he causes everything in your life to work together for your good, the good of his, of his beloved that are on their way to glory. It's guaranteed. It cannot be lost. It's an eternal chain that cannot be broken. Uh, One more thing, I think, from this particular verse, uh, verse 28 of Romans 8, and that's this. That is this issue that John raises. Is this this promise for everyone, right? Uh, It's not. Uh, The only qualification in this promise has to do with the recipients. So Paul's not, again, Paul's not writing to the general public here. This is not a promise that all things work together for the good of all people. So the question then comes, how do we know who's in and who's out, right? Who's, who's involved in this promise and who is not? And Paul gives us two descriptors, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, I would just say it's, 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 it's a way of describing a Christian. It's a Christian. Christians are involved in this promise. And again, this is just, I think it's different ways of sort of I think for, so you might say from a human perspective, Christians are those who love God, right? One of the most obvious signs of saving faith is a love for God. True salvation undeniably produces lovers of God because as Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. Ephesians 6.24, Paul refers to believers as those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Those who love God and therefore obey Him and love the things that He loves. So that's sort of from the human perspective. Christians are those who love God. And from God's perspective, Christians are those who are called according to His purpose. 
those who have been called by God into fellowship with Jesus Christ, those in whom the Spirit of God has performed His work, convincing a person of their sin and misery, enlightening their minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing their wills, persuading and enabling them to embrace Jesus who is freely offered in the gospel. Those who have experienced a sovereign, irresistible call from the Lord, a calling that has brought them out of darkness into His marvelous light. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, if you are not a believer, this promise is not for you. You cannot use this promise as some kind of magic wand to provide yourself with assurance that everything in your life is going to turn out fine in the end. In fact, should you, for example, die in your condition of unbelief, providence has not been working for your good. But if you are a Christian, you can be confident, confident that God's providence is working out in your life and the lives of others who manifest a transformed heart in the grace of God in salvation. God is good, and He does good all of the time. He never gets irritable or edgy. He is never fatigued or depressed or blue or stressed out. He is infinitely energetic with absolutely unbounded and unending enthusiasm for the fulfillment of His promises. This is our God who delights in the welfare of His children. Now, quickly, before we wrap up, let me, I'm going to give you, these are just, uh, let me give you three. These are dangers to avoid, I think, when considering the doctrine of providence. Number one, the first danger, using providence as an excuse for passivity. Uh, what is clear in Scripture is that God works through means. And if that is the case, then we ought always to apply ourselves to the ways of providence and not just stand idle waiting for God to act. For example, you remember what Joseph said in Genesis about how God was using his trials to provide for his family. But here's the thing. Genesis 42 also says this in verses 1 and 2, that when Jacob, or Israel, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So God has put these things together. He's joined together the means and the end. And we must not try to separate those things. To employ that the means without seeking God is pride. But to depend on God while neglecting the means he provides is presumption. And the scriptures condemn both. Secondly, another danger, it's the danger of pronouncing particular events as direct visitations of either divine judgment or blessing. Again, Job's friends made this mistake. The disciples misjudged the situation regarding the blind man and the reason for his condition. In Acts 28, the natives of Malta at one point concluded that Paul was a murderer because he was bitten by a viper and moments later concluded that he was a god because he didn't fall over dead. Right? They were doubly wrong. Right? So be, be careful. Yes, God is at work every moment, but interpreting providence in the present isn't our responsibility and it isn't helpful because our understanding is imperfect and it's partial. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the righteous suffer. The providences of God can seem to us to be very crooked and strange, yet they all carry on His work. 
We must, we must learn to not assume that we fully understand God's ways and purposes. Again, in Psalm 73, Asaph deepened his depression by trying to comprehend all of the intricacies of God's ways. And the same can be true of us. Joel Beakey says this, Trying to solve mysteries that are too great for us will only breed suspicion of God darkness of spirit and tempt us to take matters into our own hands, that leads us to distrust providence and to reject the wisdom and the love of God. So rather than be entangled in a maze through human reason, it's far better to bow and worship and exclaim with Paul, John, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. Uh, the third danger would be this, the danger of allowing providence to be a major factor in decision-making. Again, yes, we know that God is at work, but the question is, can we learn God's will by watching His work around us? And I think the key here is realizing that the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Uh, that, Flavel, uh, Flavel said that in his book on providence. Again, it's just too difficult to interpret it as it's unfolding. And so Flavel actually emphasized that, that providences, quote, providences themselves are no stable rule of duty nor sufficient discovery of the will of God. In fact, he actually offers this counsel, that if you want to discover God's will, then you need to govern your search by these rules. And he actually, in his, his work, gives you five Short rules. Number one, get the true fear of God upon your hearts. Just begin there. Just start with, with, a, with a, a, the proper attitude towards God. Number two, study the word more and the concerns and interests of the world less. Study the word more and the concerns and interests of the world less. Three, reduce what you know to practice. I.e., obey what you know. Right, like, like you're, you're again. You're looking for all these mysteries and trying to unpack all this. I was like, what do you already know? What are the certainties? What is where's the clarity that you already have? And just make sure that your obedience is at the same level of your is your knowledge. Right, reduce what you know to practice. Number four, pray for illumination and direction about the way you should go. So pray about these matters and trust these matters to the Lord. Take these concerns and cares to the Lord in prayer. And five. So this is after all those. The last one, this being done, he writes, follow providence as far as it agrees with the word and no further. So even in that, you've done all these other things, still be careful, right? Still limit your search, if you will. So this is the Christian's rule of life. God's revealed will in Scripture, not his secret will, which comes to expression in providence. That is what we focus on, scriptures that might speak directly to the situation and the general biblical principles that speak to every situation, not on circumstances, conditions, and signs. The providence of God, again, it's the, one of the greatest truths you could ever know. There's only one totally secure place to be in life, in the providential care of our Heavenly Father clothed in the righteousness of his Son and indwelt by his interceding and protecting spirit. Romans 8.28, again, massive promise, a promise that a Christian cannot afford to neglect. Let me just uh, give you this last quote. John Piper, this is out of his book, Future Grace, he writes this. 
Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside Romans 8.28, all this confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Outside this promise of God's all-encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and pornography and dozens of futile diversions. There are slat walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies and fleeting insurance coverage and trivial retirement plans. There are cardboard fortifications of deadbolt locks and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. Outside are a thousand substitutes for Romans 8.28. Once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There come into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good, all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life, end quote. So great, great, again, reminders. Again, it's, as we go into a new year, as we reflect back on last year, I mean, again, it's just good to think about all those, kind, all those providences, those kind providences, how God is continually providing, protecting us all the time, and to be on the lookout even as we enter this new year for God's hand in these things uh, to, to encourage our hearts even through times of, of adversity. When I talk with a college group, I said this. This when I would hear this phrase, it used to. I, I don't get bothered by it because I, I don't always know where people, why people are using it and where they're coming from. But that phrase that became very popular of "it's a God thing," I said I never. It was somebody never used to say that about getting cancer, or losing their job, or going through a divorce or something. You know, like that was a God thing. But what Providence says is, it's always a God thing. <laughs> It could be, like I said, it could be a material. It could be what you might, from a human perspective, say is a, is a positive, a good thing. But again, if the good in Romans eight twenty eight is what he goes on to talk about in verses 29 and 30, which is conformity to our Savior, then it's all good. And the Lord's working all the time. If you want uh, resources, this is uh, Providence. This, If you like fat books and long books, you have John Piper. It's a really good work. If you like medium-sized books, there's this, Flavel. Really good. The Mystery of Providence. And if you're really pathetic and you only like pamphlets, there you go. If you want an article, John Murray, Behind a Frowning Providence. So just, I've got, I've got a, a number of other resources if you're interested in reading up more on this. But there are, there, depending on how the depth you want to go, but I encourage you to read something on it. There's just a lot of good resources out there. And there are some that are in the booklet article length if you prefer that. So, all right, guys, thanks for your time.